Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm delighted to be here today with Scott Miller, the president of Virginia Wesleyan University. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on the program. Scott, could we start out and maybe have you share just a little bit about your your childhood growing up and your own educational background? Sure. Um, I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, the uh, son of a public school administrator and a nurse. And as my uh, father progressed in his career, he often took me along on some of his weekend meetings. And I was told to sit in the back of the room and take notes. And uh, we would then discuss those notes on the way back home. And there was a lot of experience that was acquired at a young age by attending these meetings uh, with my father. Um, As a teenager, uh, we moved to the other end of the state, and I lived across the street from what was then uh, Edinburgh State College. I guess that's about an hour and a half north of where you are um, Mm -hmm. in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. And the college college president was our next-door neighbor, and I learned a lot about functions at the president's house as a result of that and about the college in general as a result of its location. Later, as a student at West Virginia Wesleyan, I had uh, a shared work-study assignment in the office of the president and the office of the vice president for development. So both of those um, probably piqued my interest in becoming uh, an administrator at some point. So a number of early activities contributed to my interest in academics, but it really wasn't until I left uh, journalism after college that I really decided my career path. And, and is that what you studied at West Virginia Wesleyan was, was journalism? Journalism. I, I went there as a, as a distance runner and an undecided freshman um, and uh, tore up my leg. And uh, instead of lifting my athletic scholarship, they said, why don't we give you a work assignment in the sports information office? And they said, hey, this kid can write. And uh, my my communications degree, my work assignments, and eventually uh, work, work assignments at a local newspaper uh, took me in that direction. And Scott, you became a, a, a university president at just 31. I think at the time, the, the youngest university president in the United States, uh, you, you just shared that you had some, some early role models in your next door neighbor and, and your, your work as an undergrad. But Tell us a little bit about how that came about. How did you so quickly uh, get to to become a university president? Well, um, my pathway to the college presidency was an unusual one. Um, I'm a writer by trade and worked my way through college as a sports writer a weekend editor and a columnist for a newspaper system in West Virginia. Um, 
I authored a weekly column that was called Miller Time that was sort of an offbeat commentary about sports in the Appalachian region. And uh, one day out of the blue, I received a call from the chief development officer at a small college in Ohio. And he called and he said that my writing style had caught the eye of the senior administration there and that they wanted to know if I'd be interested in talking about a public information position. And I would be a bit of a jack of all trades, a speech writer and an editor for the president, a news release writer and a sports information director. And for a 22-year-old kid, it didn't pay much, but it was a nice position. Uh, My work ethic impressed the president. And within a year, the chief development officer had left for a vice president's job in Tennessee And I became the direct report to the president with a broader umbrella of responsibilities. And that's the first experience that really turned me on to the presidency because it was such an amazing experience. The the president at that school in Ohio uh, gave me a bit of advice that pivoted my career direction when he said, um, "There, there are people who write news and there are people who make news. You're a newsmaker. Go make it. And he encouraged me to broaden out and take on more administrative responsibilities. And, and how did the opportunity at, at Lincoln Memorial University come up where, where you first joined as a president? Yeah, so, so probably my first thought about senior administration was when I was, uh, when the former chief development officer in Ohio called me from his position in Tennessee, and he said that his institution was looking for a vice president for advancement, and he wanted them to hire me. So at age 25, I became vice president for advancement at Lincoln Memorial University. Um, I became the executive vice president at 28. And when the president retired three years later, um, I was named president. I I was interested in the presidency at some point, but his retirement timeline accelerated my interest. And at the time, I was basically finishing my doctorate, learning everything I could so that when the chance came, I would be ready. Um, I really had not pursued any other presidencies, uh, but Annie and I had fallen in love with the community and the university, and it just turned out to be an ideal fit, and it launched my career. And I think for any first-time president, it, it can be a quite a daunting role, but but to do it at, at just 31, I, and, and while you were, as you say, just finishing your doctorate, I would think that that must have posed some really interesting challenges for you. Can you tell us how, how did you approach that? Did you, did you have some some mentors who were helping you, and what what was the first year like in in that new role? Well, um, greatest challenges, I would say, centered around age. Um, If you trace the beginning of my career in newspaper work, I had to overcome the age factor as the youngest person in the newsroom. So I always had to work twice as hard as others to make an impression. That work ethic, though, created opportunities for me. Uh, When I entered higher education as a 22-year-old writer, I had to continue that same approach. So I uh, developed a reputation as being a self-motivated, get-it-done person. I worked long hours. I never complained about hours or salary. And I took on all the unusual assignments that nobody else really wanted to. 
So as a uh, young college president, the greatest challenge is centered around my age also. For example, I was 31 years old and I had a 66-year-old academic dean. Um, you know, I, I know how he must have felt to have somebody that was less half his age um, that was his immediate supervisor. Um, you know, some people expected me at that age to have an answer to everything when I was still learning myself. And fortunately, I had some good advisors from outside the institution who served as career mentors. And um, I've received some national recognition in a number of publications for my transformational style that essentially branded me as a change agent. And, um, you know, that has its positives and its negatives. In a slow-to-change higher education business, other institutions became interested in me because I was a change agent. Um, you know, my age, I guess, eventually became an asset to me and a public relations benefit to the institutions that I serve. But I guess to get to your question on formal or informal mentors, um, you know, definitely I had to rely on people because I didn't have that experience. Uh, that journey from being a 22-year-old speechwriter to a 31-year-old college president was influenced by uh, several presidential mentors who have become lifelong friends. Uh, ironically, the, uh, the chief development officer who advocated for me early in my career and who saw to it that I was hired at Lincoln Memorial is now retired from three successful long-term presidencies and is now my executive in residence here at Virginia Wesleyan. Um, in grad school, uh, noted higher education author Jim Fisher, who has written 10 books on the college presidency, took an interest in me and has been a lifetime mentor as well. So uh, I've, I've also made it a habit to have career advisors from outside the institution. Um, you know, like you, I, I, I find the Council of Independent Colleges to just be a wonderful resource for these types of relationships. Um, you find trusted, respected colleagues from non-competitor institutions that help you talk through career and life issues. And I've always had the philosophy that um, you can't discuss these types of things with anyone inside your own institution. Scott, you, you mentioned that, that you quickly developed a reputation as a sort of transformational leader within higher ed. Can, can you tell us what that looked like at Lincoln Memorial? What, what was the institution like when you came into the presidency and what were the key things you did to, to transform that institution? Okay, so, um, you know, I had the advantage at Lincoln Memorial as having had served as the vice president for advancement and the executive vice president for six plus years um, prior to becoming the president. So I, I was the logical successor to the president. But um, in the 1990s, uh, we started off-campus centers and graduate programs for non-traditional learners. Um, some of these programs were based at community colleges. Some were based in hospitals. Some were based in public schools. And the development of these types of programs were well ahead of their time. Remember, there was no internet at that point, and to e not even to be able to start thinking about doing online programs. So, you know, planting the seed with those programs has given me a sense of pride in what we accomplished at LMU and what LMU has become today. When I um, moved on to Wesley, 
in an unusual way, it, it was in 1997. I was actually attending a summer program uh, at Harvard and received a call from a consulting firm that was associated uh, with them asking me if I would talk with a small school in Delaware about an institutional review. And that conversation led to a second conversation, which led to a closed meeting with their board. And by the time I finished up the three or four weeks at Harvard and returned to Tennessee from my stay at Harvard, um, I had this offer to become Wesley's uh, president. And I remember the call I got back from Harvard and the, the chair of the board called me and he said, well, are you refreshed and ready to go? And I sort of chuckled and said, yeah, I'm refreshed and uh, yeah, I'm ready to go, but in a different way. Um, Wesley had become a model for transformation from 1997 to 2007. And um, we only added program, we, we not only added off-campus centers and graduate programs, but we also added a campus-based charter school and a community service center also. Um, you know, Wesley was a city school, Lincoln Memorial was a rural institution. Um, so during my time there, enrollment had grown fivefold, fundraising led to new facilities and increased technology. Um, in my personal life, our girls grew up there and I'm now considered a, a son of Delaware and continue to have a residence there. Um, you know, the, the third presidency, Bethany, was an entirely different institution than either LMU or Wesley. It was a very traditional residential liberal arts college with no real population surrounding the uh, institution. Um, it had been through a period of unstable leadership and my task was more focused on refreshing facilities, stabilizing the finances, and continuing the long-established tradition as the oldest institution in West Virginia. Um, you know, a member of the board at uh, Bethany was a longtime friend of mine and a presidential colleague, and he essentially recruited me to the table uh, without even having an open search. And what was it that attracted you to the, the role at Bethany, given, you know, you said you had been at different types of institutions before that. What, what, what excited you about the opportunity there? Well, um, you know, this is where I say um, I had been branded a transformational president. It was a different kind of presidency. It was a very traditional residential liberal arts institution, much different from Wesley and LMU. And I guess, um, you know, none of my four presidencies have been identical. Um, I tend to think that I've reinvented myself in a way at each of those institutions. And, um, you know, I was intrigued by the fact that I could lead a traditional residential liberal arts institution. You know, I will admit to you that being a transformationalist, going to a transactional institution is a is a tremendous change, and going from the city to a rural institution is a is a big change. So uh, it was, um, you know, professionally a, a wonderful eight years. Um, you know, personally, I'm a I'm more suited for a city type institution. I think. And Scott, you mentioned that at Wesley, um, that part of uh, what had led you into that role was being asked to, to look at doing an institutional review. This is something you've advocated in your writing about best practices for institutions, the idea of having an independent institutional review done 
before someone uh, begins or just at the outset of a new presidency. How how common has that been in your experience? Either have you done that at each of the institutions you've led? And do you see that being adopted more broadly around the country? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of us, utilizing institutional reviews to um, help chart a course for the future. And I first hooked on to these, uh, Jim Fisher, the mentor that I was mentioning, who's written books on the effective college president, presidential leadership, making a difference. The president and the board led a firm for a number of years until he retired that conducted these reviews. And, you know, reviews are typically done between the announcement of the appointment and the arrival of the new president. And they typically involve a team of experts, usually sitting or retired presidents, they, they typically evaluate all aspects of the institution and provide the new president with a blueprint for the first year while he or she becomes more familiar uh, with the campus landscape. Um, what I've noticed is mature institutions uh, use this approach. Uh, they, they have the resources, deeper pockets, and they're, they're more open to hearing a candid analysis of all aspects of the institution. Um, what I have found also is departing presidents at the, at the institution are not necessarily in favor of an institutional review because it um, pulls back the Band-Aid and shows an aspect of the institution that, uh, that they don't necessarily care to have revealed. So it uh, looks at opportunities for the future, but it also assesses current conditions, and I've used them at all four presidencies and recommend them as a whole. There are some other firms that have done modified versions of the Fisher approach. Um, I'm, I'm really firmly committed to the way Fisher approaches it because it's been so helpful to me in all four presidencies. And in, you mentioned the, the potential resistance from the outgoing president since it, as you say, kind of uh, lifts the veil and, and tries to give a candid outside assessment. Given that when mm -hmm. has, have you typically found is the best timing for it? Is is it occurring during that transition? Is it occurring just when the new person arrives? Or what what's what have you seen as the best formula for success for getting a, a really candid and helpful review? Well, um, first of all, it's having an independent team and it's having a, a reputable lead to that team, somebody with experience. It's also important to have the review team report directly to the board of trustees and not the new president. So um, the way I've seen it work the best, the board commissions the institutional review. Um, the lead for the team works with leadership from the board of trustees to chart the course for the review. Um, the president-elect is typically briefed at different aspects, but um, does not have any influence into the content of the review for a wide variety of reasons, and then is presented a document that um, the board is presented and the new president is presented with a document that typically can be 130 to 150 pages with uh, um, recommendations for improvement, celebrations of success, and uh, discusses opportunities for the future. And as you've come into the this role of president four different times, how have you approached it in terms of building your own team, 
particularly when you're with an eye toward transformation, how have you approached it in terms of balance of retaining the folks who have been there, bringing in your own people, and, and the sort of the timeline of that? So it, it's been different at all four institutions. Um, my most unusual experience was at Wesley in 1997. Uh, the president and all vice presidents had been separated from the institution. And so I showed up, asked for a meeting of my staff, and the assistant looked at me and said, I'm it. So at, um, at Wesley, I was able to move faster because I assembled a team that was exclusively mine. Um, I did bring with me from Tennessee my executive vice president from there, who is now a longtime successful president of a, of a school in Indiana, and he helped me to, to assemble the right team. Um, I generally uh, look for people who are different from me, and by that I mean a different skill set. Uh, back when I was young, I was led to believe by a trustee that it was the president's job to do everything and to know everything. And I soon found that that was not the case. So I looked to assemble a team in which each individual is superior in their respective areas. They need to be self-motivated, self-starters and goal-oriented, and they need to have an ability to analyze situations in a clear and succinct manner and, and to give me solid, candid advice. Um, you know, one thing that has been consistent uh, throughout the years is that I, I always tend to have a cabinet meeting every Tuesday uh, for about a 90-minute period. Um, we can respectfully disagree as a group, but when we come out of that cabinet meeting, we all come out of that meeting on the, on the same page. So I, I attract different leadership with different skill sets, with different opinions, so that it inspires good dialogue and um, uh, gives me good recommendations for for decisions, but at the uh, at the same time, I I don't want leadership to be out on campus second guessing each other or second guessing me. We we are a team. Through the years, I've had a decent track record of vice presidents who've gone on to college presidencies, and uh, you know some presidents see that as a bit of disloyalty that a president would come and then move on to a presidency. I I sort of see that as a as a badge of honor. If I'm attracting people to leadership positions that um, eventually assume a presidency, I want to play a role in their development. Um, at the same time, I want to help them with their success. So if I recruit superior talent, involve them, support them, they can serve me well and at the same time fulfill their career aspirations. And uh, you know, when that time comes, I'm going to be their biggest cheerleader and supporter. Uh, when I arrived at um, Virginia Wesleyan, the president and three members of his senior staff were retiring. And so um, much different from Wesley and the other two, it gave me some flexibility. The uh, chief academic officer also planned to retire. So four of the vice presidents were looking to transition, uh, but the VP for academics decided to stay long enough to transition a number of important issues for me, including tenure reaffirmation of accreditation, and some decisions that needed to be made on important issues that came out of the institutional review. So in general, I think a president needs to develop his or her own team. An institutional review can also assist with analyzing current leadership issues, 
But ultimately, I believe that the new president needs to have a team uh, of his own, his or her own, with a fresh start. And can, can you say a little more, um, even for fresh starts, it sounds like what you had at Wesley was a bit unusual to have the president and the entire leadership all leave at once. How did you yeah. go about making the university run in that first year? Well, that was quite interesting. Um, I, I, I will admit, so I was able to recruit my executive vice president to come with me. That that was probably the, the key for me. But we did use um, the interim registry to help us with some staffing for the short term uh, while we completed uh, the, the senior staff. But uh, a key for me early on um, was having my executive vice president. We had known each other for 13 years. We had been vice presidents together, and then he had served as my executive vice president. We knew each other well. I trusted him. And people knew on campus that when he was communicating with them about something, that uh, that, that which he was speaking had my full endorsement. And with, with having made the transition, presidential transition three times, how have you determined for yourself uh, what, when was the right time to look for a new role? I, I would imagine, particularly as you built your reputation, you had many opportunities along the way. So did you, was it a particular institution that led it, or did you feel there was a right time in sort of your leadership at, at a particular place that it was ready to make a change? How did you sort of decide this at each juncture? Sure. Well, as a president, I've always had in my mind a multi-year plan, uh, my playbook per se. And uh, no playbook is the same for any other institution, but the playbook is a highly energized transformational approach. I find that the highly energized plan refreshes the institution for a three to five year period and really sets the tone for the next three to five years. Um, I tend to think that there's a pivot point for a leader, but it also depends on the institution. Um, after a period, you can become predictable and in some sense uh, complacent. Um, at LMU, we fell in love with the place. Um, our, our children were born there. Annie had a good job. Uh, we had invested 13 years of our lives uh, as both vice president and president. Um, you know, Annie's the one who encouraged me to explore opportunities because, as she put it, if we didn't make a move soon, it would be bad timing for the kids in school, and we would probably have spent our entire lives there, which um, wouldn't have been healthy for either the school or our family. Uh, the Wesley presidency came about in an unusual way, and our 10 plus years there were rewarding both personally and professionally. And we continue to have a home in Delaware and our oldest daughter doesn't live far from our, our former campus. Um, the, the Bethany presidency came along about the right time. Our kids were grown and out of the house and the location was in an area that I was familiar with from earlier in my, uh, in my life. Um, in hindsight, it was better for me professionally than personally for Annie because of the, uh, the, the rural isolation of the institution, but it was a professionally rewarding uh, 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 job as well. 
Virginia Wesleyan was and is probably the, the capstone to a wonderful higher education career. And I, I really can't imagine myself going anywhere else. Um, a search consultant uh, pursued us in a closed search and the characteristics of the institution and the location made it ideal. Um, you know, the needs were consistent with my background. The coastal Virginia community is an ideal place to live. And the location isn't far from either one of our daughters and, you know, their families and our grandchildren. So, um, you know, each of those are, are different stories about um, what led to transition. You know, the Virginia Wesleyan one has been absolutely perfect. And if I if I go back for a second and trace, um, it was January of 2015, and I was at the Council of Independent Colleges Presidents Institute in uh, San Diego, California, and a search consultant had come to a session and um, that I was leading, ironically, on executive search. And <laughs> uh, she said to me, your name has come up for uh, this position that I'm doing a search for, and I'm I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I want to know if you're interested in it. Well, Annie was standing there with me and she said, do you mind telling me where is the place? And um, the, the consultant said, Virginia Beach. And she looked at the consultant and said, I don't know about him, but you can count me in. <laughs> um, you know, within a month and a half, things moved fast. There was a wonderful fit with the board of trustees on these uh, offsite confidential meetings that we had. And, um, we, we don't regret one bit the, the way that it materialized, nor the move here uh, a little bit over six years ago. Um, can, can you tell me, at, at Virginia Wesleyan, how did you go about formulating your initial playbook or, or plan there? Obviously, you had, a, at this stage, a, a great deal of experience to draw on. You had your institutional review. What, what did that look like in terms of the key initial objectives for the institution and how did you go about on executing on those? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I started with the institutional review and uh, a team of experts helped craft a blueprint for my first nine to 12 months. Um, I received grant funding from a donor at a former institution to conduct a condition assessment, a space utilization study, and also a 10-year master plan. And the grant funded a prominent outside consulting firm uh, from Pennsylvania to facilitate the planning process um, involving the campus community. Um, we then developed a 10-year strategic plan, which was just updated last year due to the pandemic, and our new plan now goes through 2030. So. Our 2015 strategic plan included becoming a university, adding graduate and online programs and honors college, um, two private academies on campus, and to become a more comprehensive institution in general. Uh, when I arrived at Virginia Wesleyan, I was told the then college was the best kept secret in the region. And that really was the worst compliment I ever heard. Uh, the board of trustees thought so too. And they challenged me to think outside the box, to throw the box away. And that's what we've done. And uh, the, the, the success has been, uh, been pretty remarkable, even under the difficult times of the pandemic. And, and that's a, uh, a backhanded compliment that I'm also determined before I leave Chatham 
to uh, uh, to to try to get its use much much reduced. Right? I I hate the the best kept secret uh, moniker. It, what what mm-hmm. did you find was most successful in in, in spreading the word about uh, Virginia Wesley? Well, I I learned that successful presidents aren't sitting in their office waiting for things to come to them. And because we're located um, in the heart of Hampton Roads, a community of 1.7 million people, we're right in the epicenter of it. Um, I took a schedule of everything, ribbon cuttings, uh, receptions, dinners, and the like, and I attended everything. Someone said that um, that I even attended the opening of envelopes. Uh, the, everything was just um, I attended everything. And and uh, you know, if eighty five percent of life is showing up, I showed up at everything, and it created opportunities for the institution, and people wanted to hear about the place, and it re-energized donors. Um, you know, my my agenda has been funded by eight or nine people who really have taken an aggressive financial commitment in the future of the institution. And it's through creating energy, being out there, talking to a lot of people, providing a recurring message, talking about a bright future, um, using some of the aspects of the, uh, of the institutional review early on. You know, you only have one chance to make a first impression. And I was convinced I was going to show up for Everything where business leaders, where wealthy people, where where uh, influencers were attending, I was going to show up and I was going to tell our story, and it opened doors. Um, there were a number of interesting aspects to your um, your plan and, and what you've been doing that I wanted to just ask a little more detail about. Um, one one that really struck me was uh, your your joint venture um, campus in Japan, Lakeland University there. Uh, could you tell us how that came about? How did how did you choose Japan? It's it's not typically you know the 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 number one sender of students to the U.S. or uh, you know they have a very severe demographic problem of a shrinking population. So I, I was curious, what was it that that led to to that location for a campus and 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 how it fits into the plan for the university? So, so interestingly, um, I have had a 30-year relationship with Lakeland and Lakeland, Japan. And Lakeland, Japan was founded 30 years ago. So I mentioned earlier the, uh, the chief development officer from Ohio who went to Tennessee, who, who then hired me in Tennessee, who then moved off elsewhere, and I eventually became president in Tennessee. Well, he headed off uh, in the 1990s to be the president at what was then Lakeland College in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And he founded uh, what is now Lakeland University, Japan in Shinjuku uh, of Tokyo, the, the government district um, in Tokyo, Japan. Um, and the Japan campus is thriving as a school, in a, as an international school. They have um, 355 students from 30 different countries. Therefore, the campus is not dependent on Japan's demographics. Uh, students from all over the world go there to be a part of the bustling life and culture of Tokyo. So in the model, students spend their first two years in Tokyo 
And then before Virginia Wesleyan entered the picture, they would spend their next two years in Wisconsin at Lakeland finishing up the bachelor's degree. What Lakeland found was missing from the equation was location. Uh, Wisconsin isn't particularly close or has easy access to major American cities, nor does it have a great year-round climate. Virginia Wesleyan solves those issues. Um, We're an attractive beach community with easy Amtrak train, car, and plane access to Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, Philadelphia, even Atlanta and Orlando. So Virginia Wesleyan gains a ready-made junior college and students that enhance and diversify our community. And now also we'll have our own partnership to send Virginia Wesleyan students to study in Tokyo, which is attractive to many of our students. Um, We also started a highly selective honors college in 2017. And the campus in Japan will provide a global engagement for each of our honors college scholars uh, to go there either for a January term or for an entire semester uh, to study in the heart of Tokyo. So, um, you know, it's a win for both institutions. Uh, You know, Lakeland's parent campus in in Wisconsin found that they weren't having tremendous interest in the students finishing the two years there. We fill that void. It strengthens both components of the institutions, and it's a win-win for for us all. Great. Um, You also mentioned that you had set up two um, private academies on the campus. Can you tell us a little about those, um, what role they play, um, and and how it interacts with with the, the university? So the, the, the first academy on campus um, was already there when I arrived. Chesapeake Bay Academy is separately incorporated, but physically located on our campus. Um, it serves students with special needs, um, you know, autism. Um, and, uh, you know, purpose behind that is that our teacher education program would have an opportunity to provide students with an opportunity of working with students with with special needs. Um, The other is Tidewater Collegiate Academy. Uh, TCA, we attracted to the campus. It's a private homeschool on campus. Um, A few years ago, TCA was looking for a new home when their lease was expiring in Chesapeake, and a prominent owner of ours connected TCA's founder with me, and we were able to attract a donor to build a joint-use building on our campus um, from the start, we saw it as a, a win-win situation for TCA to be housed on our campus. Um, TCA juniors and seniors are eligible for dual enrollment classes alongside Virginia Wesleyan students gaining valuable college experience. The VWU students and teacher education candidates then have the chance to learn an authentic teaching environment at TCA. So it's been a great partnership for, uh, for both parties. And did you say that they are a, a homeschool academy? It's a homeschool coordinating agency. And so the homeschool movement is huge in Hampton Roads. Um, you know, we have 1.7 million, if you draw a circle around us, 30 miles. Um, go to the Atlantic Ocean to the east, the Chesapeake Bay to the north, and out the other sides, there are 1.7 million people. 
And because of the diversity of the Hampton Roads area, uh, the homeschool movement has been quite popular. And the founder of TCA started it as a program that if you're homeschooling your child and you don't have a strong background in a particular area, you can pay a fee to TCA and the student can come to the academy and um, be tutored or receive instruction in those areas. And so it, it, it is a, um, an outreach to the entire area. Um, and the new program that's designed for early enrollment in college has become attractive because students can, if they're enrolled in TCA, have a cost-effective model that enables them to get some college credit. They can get up to 32 credits of college from Virginia Wesleyan uh, before finishing their high school diploma and moving into a typical college year. And I, I know this is a relatively new partnership for you. Um, are, what are you seeing in terms of the yield from those students in, in matriculating to Virginia Wesleyan? Yeah, well, um, we started, so they joined us. Um, we completed the contractual negotiations in late 2015. We identified a donor who provided a gift in early 2016 to build a facility for our joint use. In 2017, they moved to our campus. And in 2019, we started the junior-senior dual enrollment program. And there are currently about 50 students that are in the dual enrollment program. Um, I, I think we basically have seen about, um, you know, 20% of those students will continue on with us. Some of them want to uh, go outside the area. We, we have, um, you know, a couple who tried a school outside the area and decided that they missed it here and came back and enrolled with us. Um, I would see tremendous potential in this area uh, moving forward. That, that's great. Another, uh, I think, very innovative uh, program you've launched, which is something that, that we've been um, really focused on at Chatham, is the notion of, of work and learn simultaneously. There are some well-known national models, you know, places like Drexel, Northeastern, that have really pushed the co-op model. How do you see it working in a smaller institution like your own? And, and um, is that something you had done at previous ones or is that something new to, to Virginia Wesleyan? Yeah, my ultimate aspiration is to do something that's very similar to Drexel and have um, a, a better developed campus co-op program. Um, you know, I, I have had work programs at prior institutions. LMU was originally a work college where students worked on the farm um, and meaningful jobs in campus offices to pay for their tuition. Um, I've always been impressed by retention rates of students that work in campus positions. In fact, uh, since 1999, that was back at Wesley, um, I've had at least one presidential associate position for student workers. Um, at Bethany, I had 10 students who served as presidential associates uh, fulfilling a variety of jobs, hosting guests on campus, airport runs, drafting letters, and you know other tasks important to the function of the office of the president. Uh, students learn while they earn, and it's an important part of my commitment to access and affordability. You know, as one of a few 
private institutions in this Hampton Roads market, we are viewed by some as pricey. And cost containment is something that is important to me in order to provide accessibility. And um, when we started the Work and Learn program four years ago, we had seed money from a private donor, former chair of our board, um, gave us the money to try it during the summer. And our success rate, uh, we had students who were considered to be outstanding students, but who were financially at risk of becoming attrition statistics. Um, That initial group uh, that was funded through this private initiative, 38 of the students who were high risk financially enrolled, 37 of them continued on to graduation. Um, the, the, The former board chair's close business colleague and friend, a businessman from Norfolk, heard about the program and gave us um, three six-figure gifts in successive years to help us expand the program to be an in-year program. And now we have 455 of our traditional students who are working these jobs to help pay for their education. And, um, you know, what, what I have found down through time is if students work campus jobs, they seem to have a closer affinity to the campus. The retention rate is better. Um, and when they graduate, they have more of an affection to the institution. Um, I've also found that if these students are working jobs on campus, um, I I remember a story walking through a residence hall and um, one student was standing on the side of the residence hall with their foot up on the wall. And uh, the student that was walking with me said to the student, take your foot off that wall. I painted it. Um, you know, they, they take pride in their campus a whole lot better also. So it helps them pay for their education. They learn something along the way. I market it um, in the president's office, uh, the associates that I've had since 1999. I say the, the hardest part about the job is getting it. And then I said, once you get it, you're going to learn a lot, but you're also going to find that I'm going to be an advocate for you for the, uh, for the rest of your life. And um, I think that's the role of institutions like ours. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned your focus on access and affordability. Uh, I was really struck that you had several straight years of tuition freezes at Virginia Wesleyan. That, that's something that is not easy to do in a, a tuition-dependent institution like the ones we both run. How have you managed to keep tuition frozen and yet still be able to offer increases to your 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 staff and your faculty and, and move the institution forward? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, this will be our fourth year of a tuition freeze, and we've accomplished this really through aggressive fundraising. Um, you know, a greater priority for unrestricted giving, the sponsors sponsorship that I mentioned for the Work and Learn program, and also a significantly larger endowment. Um, The endowed Baton Honors College that we started in 2017 provides 80 students with full tuition scholarships and 80 students with two-thirds tuition scholarships also. So that's 160 students now that we're at full cycle with the Baton Honors College, um, you know, half of them full tuition, half of them two-thirds. When I arrived in 2015, our endowment was $55 million. And this year, 
it will grow to $123.5 million. Um, you know, we've also had $110 million of privately funded new construction. So the campus has a lot of new attractive amenities that students like, and our donors through unrestricted giving, sponsored gifts to work and learn, and growing the endowment significantly have played a major part in keeping this private college's tuition affordable for uh, this current round of students and for the immediate future as well. Yeah, that's uh, a really impressive record. Have you had to do anything in terms of of costs or other things? Because even with the more than doubling of your endowment, if you're only spending that at a four and a half or a five percent rate, which it you know would be the the typical, um, that 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 doesn't make a huge dent in in each year's annual budget. And so I'm I'm curious in terms of is it the other things you've been doing to grow the institution that have have enabled you to generate the revenue or or other things you need to 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 move these initiatives forward. It. It's, it's a combination of many factors. Uh, when I arrived in 2015, um, my house wasn't ready yet. And so I lived the first month in a residence hall on campus in the middle of a summer in a beach community, Virginia Beach. And what I noticed was that the campus was quiet. In the evening, the only thing that I could hear on the campus was the clanging of air conditioning units going on and off in different different buildings. And when I asked the question, I said, why is this campus so quiet in the summer? I was told, well, you're in a beach community and employees get to leave early. They get to leave at four o'clock so they can get out and take advantage of the sun. And, um, you know, we take those three months during the summer seriously in a beach community. And um, we put an end to that. I wanted us to be more of a 12-month institution. So, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of the traditional things that a lot of institutions do, pursued more actively auxiliary enterprises, the camps and conferences. Uh, we challenged our food service provider to, uh, to bring in a scheduler who would recruit organizations from outside the area that wanted to spend extended periods of time using our residence hall facilities and our food service during the summer. Um, you know, that returned net revenue that also went into the pot and enabled us to be able to continue to reward our employees while also being able to keep tuition affordable for our, for our students as well. You know, back to the campus cooperative concept, I found that since we started the work and learn program, that I call it the Drexel philosophy because I'm so impressed with how, how they've done it. We, we are branching out into the, to the community now and have accounting firms that are interested in hiring uh, first-year students in accounting that might work for them for three years. And if they demonstrate a particular talent level, by the time they're seniors, they're interested in hiring them for full-time jobs. Local banks are doing the same thing. The local botanical garden is doing that with students in plant biology and horticulture. So these are things that will help students pay for their education keep us more affordable, and extend our outreach into the community as well. Great. Um, you mentioned that when you were at Lincoln Memorial, you, you were one of the very early movers in, in adult and distant, more distant education, even before it was really the capability to do fully online. How, as you come to Virginia Wesleyan, 
How are you approaching that now when there are the, these mega universities, so many other competitors in this space? How are you thinking about online education for, for an institution like yours? So, um, you know, we have an online program manager for our online degree completion program and our online graduate programs. These are relatively small but selective programs. Um, you know, two other institutions in our region are open admission and low reputation, and that's not us. Um, our OPM helps us design programs that are consistent with our mission and purpose and qualitatively manageable for a school of our characteristics. I have a second OPM who works with us on our non-credit online programs, and um, these programs have grown significantly in a very short period of time. We had 1,200 enrollees last year, 1,400 enrollees so far this year. So what we're doing is we're, op we're, we're operating under the Blue Ocean strategy of competing in areas where we have particular strength rather than trying to be all things to all people. And we're not just trying to create a herd of online learners for, say, our degree programs, um, our, our biggest growth has been in the non-degree programs that we provide to this area. Um, the, the 1,200 students and the 1,400 students are programs that we developed for people that had been negatively impacted by the pandemic. And uh, we received uh, grant funding from several sources, including the Local Economic Development Authority, that paid us to provide services to people to prepare them to get back into the workforce. And they make use of our faculty. They expand our online program. It expands our database for the degree completion program. And it gives us an opportunity to position our name in the marketplace as well. And what type of areas have you found have been getting real resonance in this uh, non-degree program space uh, for, for adult learners? Interestingly, um, during the, the governor's ordered shutdown in the spring of 2020, um, we offered eight classes that were for people that would re-enter in new professions. And the survey data showed these were individuals who were furloughed and probably were not going to be brought back to work. So um, these online classes were how to write a resume, how to write a cover letter, how to interview for jobs, including simulated interviews for them, um, and basic skills things like Excel spreadsheet, um, Word documents, uh, how to develop a web page, um, creating your presence. And um, we had just a phenomenal experience. And they were offered free because we were able to get private support through economic development. We were matched with businesses who agreed to pay for these courses. And, um, you know, we, uh, it, it, the response has been strong enough that we've repeated this. We've replicated it um, now four different times during the 18 months that the pandemic has impacted the local community. Great. Um, Scott, I want to ask you about a couple of things that Chatham and Vir Virginia Wesleyan have in common. One, uh, we're both fairly recent members of the New American Colleges and Universities. Um, 
I was wondering, uh, given your long history with CIC um, and and other national bodies, what had what was it that uh, encouraged you to join NACU? So the um, New American Colleges and Universities is an organization that's really fascinated me for a number of years uh, because of their creativity and innovation. And I, I first had discussions with them, I'm going to say, six or seven years ago. Jay Lemons was the uh, president at Susquehanna University, and he told me what a wonderful organization it was. Jay has since retired and moved on to be the uh, president of Academic Search, an organization that I, uh, I chair their board. Um, so when I came to Virginia Wesleyan in 2017, um, we added two graduate programs, an online division, a large online and in-person continuing education program, the highly selective Baton Honors College and two campus-based private academies. Our, our, our program was clearly um, university stature. However, we do have um, you know, every intention to expand our graduate programs. And I look at um, the New American Colleges and Universities organization as a think tank of 24 of the, of the brightest private college leaders in the country in non-competitive markets that get together and talk about strategic things in a way that they don't have to worry about stories being carried out somewhere because they're in non-competitive markets. Um, you know, and, and this is what I'm looking for in my involvement in NACU. Um, you know, despite the leveling off nationally, we have several niches because of our location and demography. So we'll probably be adding two or three graduate level programs in a, in a, you know, the relatively near future. But the NACU involvement, I, I consider to be a tremendous asset to us because of the creativity of the people that are involved in the organization and what it can mean um, to things that will set us apart in a congested marketplace here in the Hampton Roads area. Ab- absolutely. And I, I've also found it really valuable because one of the challenges we found was was peer data. When, when you have a, a, a you're small, but you have a, a mix of grad and undergrad, it's hard to know just who to compare yourselves to and this has been, you know, really useful for that kind of benchmark information they're able to provide. Scott, I wanted to ask you also about sustainability. Uh, you had a chance to to serve as the chair of the Presidential uh, Advisory Committee for Second Nature and have been a, a real leader um, within that organization and, and nationally on, on this. We, we just had the you know, the latest IPCC report last week, it's pretty sobering what the planet is facing. What do you see as the role for higher education and particularly, you know, not the the large R1 institutions, but places like Virginia Wesley and Chatham, the other places you've served at in terms of taking on this planetary threat we face? So um, environmental issues have been a significant part of my life and career. Um, Among the institutions in the Climate Leadership Network, I'm the only person to have led three signatory institutions. Um, I served on Second Nature's board while I was chair of the Climate Leadership Network and became an elected board member after my tenure 
as the chair ended. And um, like you and Chatham, this is an important part of our institutional culture. Um, now, higher education has a huge role in combating climate change because so many students pass through our doors and we have an opportunity to educate them on their importance and have them make it a priority in their, their lives. Virginia Wesleyan is located in an important location to initiate change. We're minutes from the Chesapeake Bay in the Atlantic Ocean. We share a research vessel with the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Sciences Center. We partner with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation at a facility that's just four miles from our campus. Um, our new state-of-the-art Greer Environmental Sciences Center, which was completed in 2017, it's, it's won eight national awards so far, and it provides all the whistles and bells that students want and expect. Um, and, and we're not saying that we're going to recruit all of our students to be environmental sciences majors. What we want is students to come here, be exposed to it, learn the importance of it, and go back into their communities to make a difference. Um, our Baton Honors College, which was founded in 2017, and um, you know has received significant philanthropic a significant philanthropic endowment just this past year or two um, has a primary mi mission that is focused on connecting climate change to all areas of study. So those 160 students a year that are top scholars with top academic profiles these are these are kids who come out of high school with a with a 4.0 grade point average and a 1350 SAT, um, you know, these kids are coming here, they're getting an education. One of the pillars in the Baton Honors College is the environment. And we want to take these students and put them back into communities all over the world. We have a, a classification, no more than 50% of the Baton Honors College can be kids from Virginia. So we have them from Australia, China, Japan, uh, France, Britain. Um, we, we want to be global leaders in making a difference in the environment. And the Baton Honors College has helped us with that. That's, that's great. Um, Scott, can, can you say a little, another innovative thing that you introduced was uh, several e-sports teams. I was curious in your decision to launch these as and how you think about that relative to the more traditional in-person sports and, and, and how that has gone for you in terms of uh, not just attracting a, a new kind of student athlete, but but the relationship with the academic side of the institution. Well, again, a, a, a donor made esports e possible at Virginia Wesleyan. Um, esports is the fastest growing global sport and a billion dollar industry. And traditional sports are exactly that, traditional. Um, the appeal of doing something like esports is that this is an emerging field. And by investing in esports, we've shown that we're serious about our computer science programs and the pathways that esports open up for students from all majors. We moved faster than most because of donor support. We started with three different games, which is normal for a collegiate esports team. Um, but esports was really a godsend last year when so many traditional sports were disrupted due to COVID. Um, our team played through the season without disruption and had some big victories over Division I schools, which always feels good for, for students. 
Um, we hired a couple new faculty members with expertise in this area, in particular, someone in the computer sciences department this past year. Um, and, and so this will create ties between the academic programs and esports. And I would imagine that there's a bachelor's degree program that will definitely be on the horizon. That's great. I, I'm curious, you know, you've been recognized by, by many uh, different publications as, as one of the most entrepreneurial leaders within higher education. How have you gone about uh, staying fresh, keeping innovative in doing this over over now uh, three decades, over four institutions? Um, wh what is it? What's, what's your secret to, 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 to keep coming up with new ideas? Hmm. Um, I think effective leaders should be high energy and high energy is still my trademark over 31 years as a president. I think that that energy creates opportunities. You um, find those opportunities the more you get out in the community, meeting civic leaders, business owners, donors, alumni and the like. Um, I do walkabouts on campus at least every morning and more than that if I can. I've always felt that um, I'm not doing my job if I'm behind my desk all day. I need to be out on campus and in the community, listening, learning, and looking for new and good ideas. So then once you have a good idea, you can't be afraid to pursue it, and you can't be afraid to push others to help pursue it. So, um, you know, I've served on every board possible during the last 31 years, uh, these memberships give me an opportunity to connect with top leaders and thinkers, which embrace and enhance my creative thinking as well. Um, you know, another project that um, started small 18 years ago and has turned into something pretty significant is I'm the, uh, the, the co-publisher of a series that's called President to President. And it's sponsored by Sodexo Higher Education. And um, it's a think tank for a thought series for college and university presidents. And for 17 years so far, we're about to kick off our 18th year, we um, seek nominations from presidents to, set, to tell us, who, who do you know that's doing something interesting that would like to be a part of the series? And what we do is we get 10 interesting presidents together. We talk about innovative, creative approaches. We come up with a big topic for the year. And then each president from a different sector, a, 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 you know, institutions that aren't alike, draft their chapters, and we distribute them electronically to 4,150 college presidents across all sectors. And um, our sponsor uses it to inspire thought through blogs. We've had speakers at, at conferences and conventions, but it's also refreshing to me as a leader to be a, a co-publisher of this series because I get the opportunity firsthand to work with the 10 authors each year, the 10 thought leaders, and to hear their different approaches to different problems that are affecting their institutions and their sectors. So I guess um, that's the, the best way of saying I'm a lifelong learner. Absolutely. And it's a great way of giving back to the community. I, I know I was honored to 
be able to contribute to that and have found it really, really useful to, to hear the, see the perspectives from so many different leaders across the sector. One of the things that's really changed dramatically in, in, in your several decades in this role is social media, right? That was probably not something you had to think about when you were at Lincoln Memorial, um, but you've been recognized again as a real leader in the use of this among college presidents. How do you go about managing that on top of everything else that you're doing? You know, when we moved here a little over six years ago, I was cleaning things out and I found a memo from a faculty member at Lincoln Memorial that was complimenting me on being so technologically forward thinking because I was providing fax machines in every (laughs) academic building so faculty could fax things back and forth rather than having to walk memos to individual buildings. Um, Boy, things have changed since then. Um, You know, my social media strategy... uh, really started to develop when I was at Bethany College. And when you're on a rural mountaintop uh, 39 miles out of Pittsburgh, but an hour and 15 minutes, um, you know, drive time, you have to think of a way of how from this rural mountaintop are you going to communicate with a wide constituency. And so um, I developed a social media strategy using seven different platforms Um, you know, the old journalist in me, um, I could do writing and photography. And so we use the platforms as a way to force communication, not just with our current students, but our faculty, staff, our alumni, and special constituency groups. So, you know, I've, I've extended that. I'm out in the community a lot. I enjoy sharing my experiences with my social media following. I also want alumni and friends to feel connected to the university. And so I post a lot about construction projects and new initiatives on campus so that people can stay involved. Uh, we can't expect people to read a multi-page newsletter anymore. So by sharing updates in real time, we're bringing the alumni and friends along for the journey as the, uh, as the university grows. So my social media platform is multifaceted. Um, it includes the traditional Facebook page, but also Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and a blog. But it also includes a weekly presidential newsletter that we call Nota Bene and a monthly president's letter. And our philosophy is centered around having the most effective internal communication strategy because it'll drive our external communication strategy. So Nota Bene and the president's letter uh, drive my external social presence. And we use the strategy that by going across all these platforms, that the recurring message will resonate with our different publics in a way that they then will be repeating those messages to other publics, and it'll generate enthusiasm, excitement about what's going on here. Great. Um, I'd like to turn, if could, just to think about, you know, with, with your deep experience and perspective from, from several institutions, how you see the higher education market evolving over the next decade. We've got the entrance of some real mega universities now, the Southern New Hampshire's and Western governors and Arizona states of the world. Um, We have new entrants who aren't degree-seeking like Guild Education, Google, others. How do you see the, the smaller private institutions being able to be successful in this highly competitive environment? 
Well, I think, yeah, a number, a number of different things. I mentioned earlier how we're addressing things. Our non-credit program is unusual for an institution like us to, to have 12 to 1400 people enroll in non-credit programs. You don't find that at, at typical private liberal arts and sciences institutions. We think that that's, um, you know, a blue ocean market for, for us. I think, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to find that, um, the pandemic has brought about new teaching and learning styles. Um, I doubt that we'll ever fully return to the instructional techniques of the past. Um, the, the methodology, though, of traditional residential liberal arts experiences has been seriously impacted. And I think that um, this generation is different in how they'll learn, and we have to adapt to it or our institutions will die. There are um, I think it's around 450 colleges in America that call themselves traditional residential liberal arts colleges. Um, their, their shortcoming is that they replicate themselves. Um, you know, they compare themselves to schools that are like them. Um, the pandemic has forced higher education to change. And if these colleges continue down their current path, many of them will die. So I, I, I follow with tremendous interest um, liberal arts colleges that are in same markets that are doing just staying the course and doing the same thing. I, I also am studying, uh, for example, the the state college system up in your area in Pennsylvania, where they're going through forms of of consolidation. I'm looking at large public research institutions that are buying for profits to enter into a different marketplace. Um, higher education is changing forever. It won't go back to the old model. And I think that what we'll see in, in 20 years is a, a radically different uh, delivery system. And those institutions that don't change to meet that new delivery system will fail. They'll merge, they'll close, or they'll be consumed by a different market. And as, as you think about that and, and the, the lessons um, that we drew from the pandemic, what, what do you think? will be some of the, the most lasting changes in, in how we go about uh, providing education for the, this new generation? Are there particular innovations that, that you saw um, at Virginia Wesleyan that you think you'll be uh, continuing with a, a, as we go back to more normal operations? Um, you know, when we, in March of 2020, when the governor said, issued a stay-at-home order, um, and we said we were going to go to remote instruction, either online or hybrid. The students went, yeah, man, I love this. I can, um, you know, sit in my bed in my pajamas, take my course. I, I may never go back. Um, what we heard eight weeks later was that they missed it. And um, the University of Phoenix and Liberty University are never going to replace uh, private institutions like Virginia Wesleyan and Chatham. Um, what I think the pandemic has done is forced institutions like ours to seriously look at our delivery systems. Um, and it'll make us better institutions. We know that students go to a Chatham and a Virginia Wesleyan for a particular residential experience. If they want it online, exclusively online, they'd go to an exclusively online institution. 
but they, they want something different when they come to our types of institutions. It can be intercollegiate athletics. It can be joining a fraternity or sorority. It can be uh, the friendships that develop and the funds that are raised toward their education of a work and learn program. Those are the uniqueness of institutions like ours. What's going to change, though, I think, is we're going to see more flipping of the classroom. I think that we have seen that while all schools are not suited for online, uh, that online can supplement in-person instruction rather well and contribute to academic quality. And by that, I mean, I hear and see professors that are talking more about recording a lecture and requiring a student to watch that lecture before coming to class so that they're ready then to lead interactive discussions of a more in-depth and personal variety in class. Um, I've seen um, open access to resources. Books are so expensive. Faculty got awfully creative during the pandemic on how to provide affordable resources to supplement the classroom experience. I think small colleges, small private institutions, it's going to cause um, us to be more effective in our delivery system and to tell our story a lot better. But it also can be a case for us to make that you can't replace that in-person instruction, that small uh, classroom experience, that living in a residence hall, eating in the cafeteria, running into your professor in the hallway. Those things can't be replicated in an online Scott, as you look back on on your more than three decades as as a as a leader of colleges and universities, are, are there particular things that stand out to you that you think when you when you look back on your career you're be most most proud of having achieved at at, at any of the institutions? The number of graduates, I think, that have passed through the halls of the four institutions I've served is something that is a, is a point of pride. Um, I, um, you know, led a small Wesley College that grew to a pretty significant size uh, during my tenure. And to, to hear somebody tell me that 60% of the living graduates had walked across the stage with my signature on their, develop, on their diploma is something I smile about. Um, I like to think that my career has been focused on accessibility and affordability, providing educational opportunities to students who might not otherwise have earned a college degree. Um, the, the pride that you see, we have, we have 28% of our students at Virginia Wesleyan are the first in their family to, to go to college. And to uh, see the joy on graduation day as they walk across the stage is something that's rather special to me. Um, I'm also proud of the number of the members of my senior staff that have gone on to significant leadership positions as a result of our working together. Um, you know, you're in the Pittsburgh market. I grew up as a fan of the Pirates, uh, the, the, the late, great Roberto Clemente. Um, once said, I want to be remembered as someone who gave all he had to give. Um, that's attributable to him as a, a superstar baseball player. But I, I think I want to be remembered that way as an educational leader as well. Uh, a high energy person 
who gave all to their institution to grow that institution and to provide affordability and accessibility to, uh, to, to thousands of students. I'm curious on the other side of things, what, what as, as you've got led for, for such a, a long tenure, what has been the greatest challenges that, that you've faced in the role and, and how, how did you go about handling them? Several months ago um, at a faculty roundtable, um, I shared that I had led institutions through energy crises, through stock market crashes, through a worldwide financial crisis, and also through 9-11. Um, I truly believe that what's occurred these last 18 months tops all of that. I, I think you can take all of those previous crises, throw them into one bushel, and it still wouldn't reach the challenges of the last year and the pandemic. Um, throughout the pandemic, there was so much uncertainty and everyone was looking to me to know what to do and to make the right decisions. And oftentimes those right decisions were also really hard, heartbreaking decisions like canceling in-person commencement for the class of 2020 and furloughing, hardworking cafeteria employees because the students were sent home. Um, there, there was so much financial pressure, but also emotional pressure too. Um, you know, students' health and happiness was in our hands in a whole new way. Um, I handled it by surrounding myself with people that I could trust to use data and science to make informed decisions and people who were also willing to present a, a united front and take responsibility for decisions made. Um, you know, our COVID mitigation at Virginia Wesleyan was quite a feat, and it's because of teamwork and a shared vision that the campus made it through two full semesters of in-person instruction when so many of uh, their peers were learning strictly online and at home. Um, you know, let me add that the pandemic also showed that leadership is not for everyone. Um, a number of presidents uh, at other institutions have resigned or retired early saying, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. On the other hand, uh, people like you and me have used our experience for the, uh, the safety and the betterment of our campus communities. And, and um, yes, it's been a challenge, but um, I'm, pri I'm proud of how we've addressed these things and how we've come out of the other end of it. Yeah. I, I think as one colleague said to me, uh, I didn't realize I was signing up to be a public health authority on top of all of the other parts of the job description. But I think we've all had to, to learn that in, in real time. Uh, Scott, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I just wanted to stop. You, you mentioned yeah. that one of the things you're most proud of is, is mentoring others to, to, to move on to, to senior leadership or other presidencies. When, when you have colleagues who are going on to take on the role of a college president for, for the first time, what, what, what do you advise them? What, what do you tell them so, so that they can be successful? Um, so when I was young, the path to the presidency was very traditional. Uh, most presidents came with academic leadership backgrounds 
as deans and vice presidents for academic affairs. Uh, things are quite different now. Presidents are now more like mayors responsible for basic services like infrastructure, but also they have to have strong political skills. Um, the college president of 2021 has to be a master generalist. Um, I encourage aspiring presidents to read the ACE study of the presidency and you, you see a different skill set. Um, never stop learning. Never take yourself too seriously. Um, always make decisions utilizing the highest standards of ethical behavior. Um, always care about the well-being of others. Always place the best interests of the institution first and foremost. And if you combine these factors and many other things that we've discussed today, you can be a successful leader. Um, I, I also would be remiss if I didn't do a bit of an advertisement for aspiring presidents to the Council of Independent Colleges and the American Academic Leadership Institute, AALI. Um, AALI services both CIC for private institutions and ASCU for state institutions. And I would encourage aspiring leaders to look at AALI's website because they have a series of programs, uh, a senior leadership academy uh, that, that is for director and dean level individuals who want to become vice presidents and an executive leadership academy that is for senior leaders that are aspiring to a college presidency. Outstanding programs crafted to either the private sector or the public sector. And um, as a result of the generous financial support that they receive from Academic Search Incorporated, um, those leadership development programs are affordable for all. So um, I, I would encourage aspiring leaders uh, to, to check those out as well. Thanks so much for that, Scott. And thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, with us from, from your tenure as uh, the leader of four different institutions, uh, uh, an accomplishment very few people uh, throughout the several centuries of higher education in the U.S. can claim. So uh, it's been great to get to know you um, and have a chance to talk with you today and uh, wish you all the best for the coming academic year. I know we're, we had all hoped this would be a little bit more like the, the new normal, but uh, we're, I know we're all going to do our best to deliver a great education for our students. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to work with you on so many things that we interact on and uh, appreciate the good work you do at Chatham for the higher education community.